listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. everyone and welcome to episode 17 of Footprints on Our Hearts. I hope this week has been kind to you and you've been enjoying a little bit of the sun we've had and the warmer weather outside. So this week is the first of a two-part episode with Frankie Brunker who is author of the book These Precious Little People. In this week's episode we'll be talking about her daughter Esme who was stillborn in 2013 And the second part of Frankie's story will go out in two weeks' time when we chat about grief, talking to children about loss, and why she decided to write These Precious Little People. And it's going out in two weeks rather than next week because next week is a special episode because next week is Sky's first birthday. It feels kind of surreal that it's been a year since our baby girl died. It's been one of the darkest years of my life in many ways. But I think that I've come out of it a stronger person and in many ways a better person. And I've certainly learned a lot about myself over the past year. When I first thought about starting this podcast, I thought that Sky's story, my story, would be one of the first episodes to air. Turns out I've found it much easier to share other people's stories than my own. But I felt that it was time, that time was right to open up a bit more about my own experience of loss and grief and to tell you all about Sky. So next week's episode is a solo show. It may be in one part or two, depending on whether I want to have one mega long episode or divide it into two shorter ones, but they will both go out at the usual time next Friday. I'll be talking about Sky, about my grief journey and what I've learned in my first year of life after loss. As it is a birthday and birthdays mean gifts and presents, I'm also running a very special giveaway, both to celebrate Sky's birthday and this podcast, which is part of her legacy. And I've got a bunch of fantastic things that I'm going to be giving away um, for this. So first up is a copy of These Precious Little People, which Frankie's very kindly donated. I'm also throwing in a gorgeous eco-friendly soy wax candle, personalised with the name of your baby, a cute bookmark, cute bookmark, (laughs) can't get that out, and any other fun things I can come up with over the next week or so. Just to give you a bit more information about the book, so Frankie wrote these precious little people to help parents explain the loss of a baby to children of all ages. It's an absolutely beautiful book, beautifully illustrated. And it really offers a nice explanation without glossing over what loss is. It's very straightforward in its language, but it also gives you the option to personalise it in terms of how you want to talk to your children or other children about the loss of your baby. Now, even if it's not a book that you think you'll use yourself, as part of the giveaway, you have the option, you can gift it to a friend who you think it might be useful for, or you can request that it's sent to an organisation such as perhaps a hospital who you think might find it useful. The candle I'm giving away is gorgeous. I bought one for Sky at Christmas. It smells amazing and it looks amazing absolutely beautiful the photo does not do it justice um and yeah and that can be personalized with your baby's name or the name or message of your choice I am running the giveaway 
primarily on Instagram. So to enter, head on over to my hashtag, um, or my hashtag, my handle at Footprints on Our Hearts on Instagram, and look for the giveaway post for details of how to enter. It's pretty obvious it's got the word giveaway on it and a picture of those beautiful things which um, form part of the prize. If you're not on Instagram, you can still enter by sharing a link to the podcast on Facebook and emailing a screenshot of your post to alison at footprintsonourhearts.com. I've, as I've mentioned before, this podcast is part of Sky's legacy to share your stories and help people who've ended up in this baby loss club to feel less alone. And by taking part in the giveaway, you're not not just entering to to get this fabulous prize, although it is pretty awesome, I will say, (laughs) but you're also helping me reach more people who may find this podcast useful, beneficial, necessary even to listen to. And that, as I always emphasize, that does not have to be people who have lost a child. And in some ways, In some ways, I'd rather people who haven't experienced a loss listen to these episodes because they can get a greater understanding of what it's like to experience baby loss and the grief and all those other emotions that come alongside it, how they can support a friend or family member who's suffered a loss and just have a greater awareness, I think, about the fact that baby loss is a lot more common than perhaps they think. It's a lot more common than is perhaps talked about. And it really is a life-changing experience. So yeah, please help me spread the word. (laughs) Um, Just a note on the giveaway prizes. So they can be shipped to anyone in the UK. If you're listening and you live outside the UK and would like to enter, you still can do that. And I would love your help in spreading the word. Um, if that's the case and your name is drawn out of the lucky hat or the random name generator, <laughs> then I will find an alternative, equally beautiful prize to send to you. So the giveaway is open until midnight UK time on June the 3rd. So effectively for the next 12 days, I think. And I will announce my win- the winner in my second podcast episode with Frankie on join the 5th. Um, so yeah, please do head on over to Instagram or share the podcast on Facebook. And in in the words of the Hunger Games and Suzanne Collins, may the odds be ever in your favour. So I think that's all for today. <laughs> um, as I said, in next week's episode is a solo show. Um, so I won't be doing a kind of formal intro because I'm recording um, the show in advance. Um, mainly because I'm not quite sure how how next week's going to go and how I'm going to be feeling emotionally. So I don't want to have the pressure of my usual habit, which is frantically scheduling the podcast episode on a Thursday night before it's supposed to go out. So I will be scheduling that in advance. But my next proper intro will be in two weeks' time. And in the meantime, please do enjoy this interview with Frankie. Um, I really enjoyed chatting to her and she's got lots to say. Goodbye for now. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Frankie, author of the beautiful book, These Precious Little People, who she wrote, which she wrote to help families explain the death of a baby to other children. Welcome to the podcast, Frankie. And could you start by just introducing yourself and your family? Hi. So, yeah, I'm called Frankie and I have a beautiful daughter who's no longer with us called Esme, a son called Jago, another daughter called Ayla, and I'm married to Mark. Fantastic. Um, And we're going to spend a bit of time talking about Esme today and then talking about your experiences once you had your other children who came along after Esme and also, of course, the book. So let's start off by talking about your first daughter. When did you decide to start trying for a baby and how how was your experience of getting pregnant and being pregnant with her? So we got together when we were quite young my husband and I so we were both at school (laughs) Um, and we went to separate universities 
So we had a long distance relationship during that time. But we we'd always hoped that we would stay together and be able to start a family one day. It was um, a matter of debate as to when the right time was, because I think I was ready a lot sooner than Mark. And, and that's not to say that he didn't want children, because he absolutely did. But he was very sensible and he's, he's very... Um, it's strange because when I first met him, he was like the class clown and really um, a bit of a live wire. He was sort of the life and soul of the party, that kind of thing. And it was like a switch was flicked at, at some point when in his late teens. And he just became this really driven and very um, ambitious person. And thankfully, we, we did uh, stay in love um, and we sort of grew together because I know people do change over time I don't believe this kind of leopards don't change their spots philosophy I think people do change and grow and we were lucky that we grew together and um, stayed in love but it was um, it was quite a challenge for me I suppose to to sort of be on the same page as him at various points because um, yeah like I say he was very sensible and was trying to focus on the career and, you know, us both establishing our careers and being able to save up to afford to buy our own, our first home. Um, and there were all these things that he wanted to get in place before we started trying for a baby. And in his mind, it was kind of, well, it will, it will just happen. When we're ready, it will just happen. And I was sort of having to explain to him, well, there is this thing called, <laughs> called the biological clock and... I think I'd I'd been aware of of all of those issues for quite a long time. I can't remember how or why, but I was aware of things like miscarriage and fertility problems. So I I did have that in the back of my mind. I know um a couple of friends of mine from school, they'd had children younger than the rest of our friendship group and um a couple of them had actually had miscarriages and they hadn't talked about them a lot. And I have to confess, I probably wasn't a very good support to them at the time because I had no idea what to say. But I was um, aware that things don't always go smoothly, shall we say. And I didn't want to sort of leave it to chance and and assume that we were going to be able to fall pregnant quickly and have no problems. So when um, we did finally decide the time was right for both of us, we actually um, planned to have one last holiday, just the two of us. And we went to Cuba in Christmas 2012. And I thought to myself, how amazing would it be if we managed to start trying on this holiday and we conceived a baby in this amazing place? And I think the day that we arrived, I got my period. And I was like, oh, well... <laughs> That's not going to happen then. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so that was sort of the first, uh, the first inkling to me that you can plan these things all you like, but your body will have other ideas and <laughs> other things will come along to to throw a spanner in the works. But my husband was still absolutely convinced that we were on track. It was going to be fine as soon as the time was right. Then we would try, and everything would just happen. So I think I, you know, we came back to the UK very dreary January in 2013, and it was uh, we were both just on a mission to <laughs> to make this baby. <laughs> so come on, let's jump into bed. <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, there were there, it obviously wasn't a terrible chore, but it it did feel like it was a job. It was a it was something that we both wanted to happen. So we were going to work very hard. At trying to make it happen and it, it does amuse me when people talk about trying for a baby or their problems with conceiving and and things like oh just relax it will happen and oh as soon as I stopped worrying about it or or this is this is the thing that really baffles me they say oh well we we um when we knew we wanted to start a family we just stopped trying not to get pregnant and I thought okay well, how does that work? Because in my mind, once we were starting to try, it was like, well, this is all my brain is going to think about. So <laughs> that's the that's the focus, that's the aim. And it was never a relaxing experience for us, I would say. 
it was kind of um yeah a task and we always had that goal in mind but uh my husband was convinced that yeah it was going to be first time trying first month of trying and that would be it and he was right <laughs> so you should trust your husband it's yeah, not a story <laughs> yeah he's not always right but in that instance he was right we did get pregnant the first month of trying and my my period was a bit late but I thought well it's I don't have an absolute clockwork cycle so I don't know what's happening here and um I took the test on my own and my husband had gone off to coach rugby that morning and I couldn't believe that it was it came out positive it was a real it was just such an exciting just thrill really because it was just kind of oh my gosh this is really happening and it really it did really feel like wow I I have got a baby growing inside of me and I felt like a mum in that moment I felt like wow I I'm a mum and, it, and and that's something else that I struggle with when people sort of talk about that um, that moment that their baby was placed in their arm and that's it was love at first sight and things like this. I just think, well, for me, as soon as I saw those words and knew I was pregnant, that love was there. I was just absolutely, I was all in. It was just kind of yeah, this is this is happening. This is real. And obviously, there were there was sort of that that knowledge in my mind that yeah this this might not all pan out as we as we hope so we were we were sort of approaching the 12 week scan and we hadn't told everyone um but we had told a few people we told our parents um and they were excited for us as well but then yeah lying down on the on the on the bed for the scan and seeing our baby just jumping around it was just a really magical moment I always remember that and we were just grinning like Cheshire cats just absolutely thrilled to bits and again I didn't assume that everything was going to be fine at that point but for us it was really kind of gave us a lot of hope that scan that yeah things are on track everything's going well I'd had a few pregnancy symptoms but um it was all very manageable. It was a, it felt like a very easy pregnancy up until that point. Um, I think not long after that, I experienced a really terrible migraine. And it was like the kind where you just have to retreat to your bed and just hide in the dark for several days. Um, and that was probably the worst thing that happened during my pregnancy. And I did I did phone the hospital at one point because I was worried and I, I had this knowledge that a really bad headache is not a good sign. I didn't I don't think I knew exactly what the implications could be, but I did report it and, and they were asking me questions like, Well, um, have you had any swelling, things like this. But it, it was so early in the pregnancy that I think there was a sort of it was almost like a tacit understanding, well, you know, if there is anything really going badly wrong we can't do anything so hopefully you know take some paracetamol and I was thinking yeah paracetamol is doing nothing but thanks anyway <laughs> and I was oh just, that's a device <laughs> yeah I was just thinking um yeah this, if this is if this is what I have to do to grow this baby then let's just get on with it and I remember Mark being really sweet at that time he made me um, a lovely playlist because as much as you want to just lie in a room and go to sleep, you can't sleep all the time. It's just <laughs> you want to be knocked out pretty much just to get through a migraine. But it doesn't always happen like that. But I couldn't face reading. You know, I like reading, but I couldn't face it. My my eyes were just not capable of taking in words. So he um, he set up an audio book for me and he also made this lovely playlist of just really gentle, relaxing music that he thought I would like. And I, I can listen to that playlist now, and it, it's strange because it, it's not like a really happy memory because I was lying in bed in a lot of pain. But it was still a memory that I have of my pregnancy with Esme. And so to me, that all of those songs are special, and that was a special time that we shared together. Um, yeah, as we, as we approached... As we approached the anomaly scan, um, 
we both agreed that we didn't want to find out the sex of the baby. So um, we went along just very focused on checking, is everything growing okay? Is everything all right? And um, I think that gives an indication as well that, that we weren't totally naive. We were thinking, yes, this is an important scan to check that your baby is healthy. And I remember as soon as we got in the room, it's a re- the sonographer was so jolly and so <laughs> so um it was it was a bit disarming because we're we're very British we're kind of oh hello very polite and <laughs> how are you today a little bit nervous and he just <laughs> he just uh, said in this booming voice so we're gonna find out we're gonna have a look at your baby's willy today <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, hang on a minute we don't we don't want to find out the sex of the baby thank you very much and we did laugh and we said oh well we'd, we'd actually like to keep the sex of the baby a surprise and he was fine with that but he was so jovial and relaxed that it put us at ease as well and we kind of I think we were sort of tricked we're kind of lulled into a false sense of security from that point like oh well this yeah this is fun we get to see our baby's heart and everything looks fine and and she was just um we obviously didn't know she was a she then but we were kind of joking that because she was so active in the scans that I was growing a little gymnast in there and I remember that scan because I could see the movements I could finally twig that oh what I've been feeling that is definitely movement because I hadn't really been able to feel a lot of movement up until that point so that was really again I I just remember that was a really magical moment during that scan just getting to connect and and realize yes that is my baby I'm feeling and looking at and this is all so real now and then um yeah, as as time went on, the movements did get stronger. But I think what I hadn't established at that scan, which might have been helpful or, or perhaps not, I don't know, was that I th- I'm almost certain that I had an anterior placenta, which is possibly why I wasn't feeling the movements so clearly. That's when the placenta is at the front of your womb. Um, so it cushions the, the movements a little bit. Um, my midwife that I saw um, for the standard checks, she was always very, um, to me, she seemed quite blasé about things. And she would do things like listening for the heartbeat and she would be guessing. She'd have this own little guessing game she'd play where she'd say, oh, yes, it's quite a fast heartbeat today. That's um, more indicative of, uh, I can't even remember which way around it is now, more indicative. One wants you to know the sex of your baby apart from you, basically. Yeah, it's really strange. And and I was I was just lying there thinking, well, surely you just need to be listening to the heartbeat and checking that everything's fine. Like, I'm not not interested in. I, I just want to know it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it it was the same every week. I don't know if it was sort of her way of getting to get to know you or bond with you or, or getting you to imagine this baby as a person. I don't know. But to me, it's it, she didn't seem didn't strike me as being totally professional in some ways. Um, and I remember one appointment that Mark came with me to, and we said that uh, the baby had had a bit of a quiet day um, over the past couple of weeks. And I think I was around thirty-two weeks pregnant or something. And she said, "Oh, you were probably just really busy that day." And and I said, well, I wasn't actually because I was having a really chilled out day. I went I went to Hitchin Lido with my sister, which just felt like such a lovely treat because it was a beautifully sunny day. It was very busy at the Lido, but we were just so chuffed because we managed to get in. We queued up to get in. Not everyone was being let in that day. And um, yeah, in amongst sort of lounging about by the side of the pool we had a couple of dips but we weren't you know swimming lengths or anything like that it was just a very relaxed day and yeah I did I did just notice that the baby wasn't moving as much but I kind of I think at the time I put it down to well I'm totally relaxed and chilled out so maybe the baby's just really relaxed as well and when I'd mentioned it to Mark he said oh well we need to we need to um, talk to the midwife about that at the next appointment. And I don't think I'd even remember to bring it up, but he had in that appointment. And she'd been saying, oh, well, you, probably, you probably just didn't notice the movements. I said, well, I'm, 
fairly certain I would have noticed because I was actually because my sister was there I was quite keen to have her Mm -hmm. feel the baby move and experience that with me and it just wasn't really happening and I started to joke um, that she didn't really like to perform or you know the baby we called we called her uh, the bean actually we had a nickname for her the bean (laughs) Um, so we sort of joked that she that the the bean would get a bit shy around people and wouldn't um you know if someone even like my mum who used to come around to see us um put her hand on my stomach it was very rare for the baby to give a give us a kick at that point and even with Mark I think he did struggle for quite a long time to catch one of the kicks and I'd be so excited every time she was really active because then I'd be like oh quick quick come on she's the baby's doing a, a, a gymnast display in there just get involved have a feel of this and we'd um she would be very uh, very active at night uh, when I was going to bed usually and um but, so that was quite a nice bonding experience if we'd went to bed at the same time and he we, we'd be lying there and feeling our baby just wriggling around in there and we'd sort of imagine like are they having a disco in there are they training to be an olympian in the future because <laughs> my, my husband no, no footballers presumably if he's a rugby fan yeah <laughs> more of a rugby fan so yeah I think um he was envisaging gymnasts actually I think that was, okay. <laughs> that was the, <laughs> and I was thinking well what about a dancer you know let's be mm-hmm. Let's think of some some other activities. Yeah, it doesn't have to be professional sport orientated. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we just have have all these lovely chats of imagining what our child was going to be like, and I have really nice memories of of that time as well. Um, so yeah, as as time went on, I was really. I was trying to wind down at work, but it really, it wasn't happening. It was a very busy time at work and it was getting really quite stressful. I, um, at that time I worked at the phone office and I was working on, um, a portfolio, which included chemical weapons and Syria. So this is 2013 and the awful chemical weapon attack happened. I don't know if you remember that happening at all. So that was, um, the end of August. And I, was, and I was thinking, this is really a devastating, horrible experience. But selfishly, I was thinking, look, I am, <laughs> I'm due to go on maternity leave soon. I don't need this in my life. And my, my line manager was amazing. He's just, I sort of liken him to a pocket rocket because he's quite petite, but he's just so full of energy. And he was just all over the place, just wanting things to happen and wanting them to happen yesterday, but not in a demanding way. He was just really keen to to ramp things up. And I was thinking, this is really not lining up with my priorities right now. <laughs> so I could really do without this. But um, we sort of, we managed things at work and it was it was okay. I wasn't staying really late. He was very good at being like, look, come on, Frankie, it's time for you to go home now. You need to rest and make sure you're, looking after yourself mm-hmm. and um yeah and then so when it when it came time to going off on maternity leave it it did feel like I need I needed it and I was just really enjoying being at home and just preparing to have this baby we'd been going to NCT classes and we'd been doing some NHS antenatal classes as well all I was thinking about at that point was right how am I going to get through this birth so I'm not good with pain (laughs) Um, I've got a low pain threshold and I'm just a bit pathetic so (laughs) I was just thinking yeah I'm really not looking forward to this I'd also been a birth partner for my older sister she'd already had two children by this point and both times I'd been there at the birth that wasn't uh, it wasn't intentional with the second baby not because I'd put my foot down and said I don't want to do it again but it just so happened that I went round to babysit my nephew so she could have a sort of child-free day in the time when she was preparing to have her second child 
And I, she answered the door and said, right, Frankie, I think I'm in labour, so change your plan. <laughs> change your plan. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> and, so uh, I guess that must have, um, that must, so you had some idea of the realities of labour and giving birth then, which I guess is both positive and negative, or, you know, it can be, you know, it's good and bad in a sense. Exactly, yeah. And I think I, I do remember, because I'd, I'd, she'd asked me to be, birth partner along with her husband for her first child I thought right well I've got to prepare for this I'll watch one born every minute that's enough research and I sort of did, did a bit of googling at that time but it was more sort of to support her and be aware of things like you know if she asks me for this that's what it means or if she says don't let this happen I need to be aware of what that actually is so I can be an advocate for her I suppose but I was still a bit you know clueless as to what it would actually be like um because watching someone go through it whether it's on tv or someone you know in real life it's it's not the same as going through it yourself and I think the the most important thing I took from knowledge that I already had of of labor was that every labor is going to be different and it's going it's unpredictable and you just have to sort of go with the flow and figure out what the best plan is as you go along so we'd we'd put together a birth plan ourselves and it involved you know all the all the fantasy of oh yes it will be a lovely water birth and natural I don't want any um pain relief if I can help it but at the same time I was thinking well I might actually really need that pain relief so (laughs) I'm going to be realistic about this and say if I am struggling this is what I'll be happy to have and I'd said I didn't want pethidine. Um, I didn't want things that were going to have the chance of affecting the baby or make me feel really drowsy. Um, so things like that were in our birth plan. And I think um, that's something I'd like to come back to later because that, was, that wasn't discussed at all after we'd found mm-hmm. out our baby had died. It wasn't, we weren't asked about, oh, did you have a birth plan and what would you what do you envisage happening with this labor? I, if those conversations, if those conversations happen, I don't remember them happening. Let's just put it that way. I don't remember our, our birth preferences being taken into account. Um, so yeah. So what, yeah, what point then? So you're, you're pretty much almost full term now. If you, you've got on maternity leave and you're chilling out, or what, at what point did, did you realize that something was wrong? I remember that last week, um, I was doing things like finishing off bits at home. I, I'd made this lovely bunting for the nursery and I, I had a lovely day around at my parents making that. So my mum has got all these bits of material and all the sewing supplies. I thought, well, if I go around there and do it, she'll be on hand to help and it'll be a nice way to spend a bit of time with them before the baby arrives. Um but there was also, uh, my line manager phoned up really full of apologies and said, look, I'm so sorry about this, but can you come in? Because we've got to do your appraisal. I was like, really? I'm about to have a baby. <laughs> this is not a priority. I don't, I don't want to come in. But I did. I came in and got that done. I managed to see some friends from work and spend a bit of time, a bit more time with them. And it wasn't a great hardship. I think my season ticket was still valid anyway so I had to pay money to go on the train or anything like that um but yeah there, there were things sort of I was very much like right this we're on the home straight now I just need to focus on getting ready for this baby to arrive and my two my sister's two babies had arrived a week early so in my mind I think I was sort of think I was sort of anticipating perhaps being a bit early but I remember um when we got to full term, the 37 week mark, um, Mark and I had a, a mini celebration in our kitchen. Like, wow, yeah, we're at 37 weeks, full term. Isn't this amazing? And I think in our minds, that was really, that was genuinely the point at which we thought, come on, nothing can go wrong now, surely. Because I, I think before then, I, I'd remembered having a conversation with friends at work when I reached 24 weeks. And I'd said, oh, this is um, a really great day because baby is viable now. So if um, if I go into labour tomorrow, then they will do everything they can to save the baby. And I remember them looking at me like, 
what are you on about? <laughs> babies weren't on any of their radars, I don't think. So for them, that terminology didn't have any meaning. And I think I, I, I almost got a sense like, why are you thinking like that? You know, like you're growing a baby, you're going to have a baby. That was, I think that was what was going to happen in their mind and everything's going to be fine. But I think I did have it in the back of my mind. Like, yeah, babies do sometimes arrive really early and sometimes they need a lot of help. So when we got to that 37-week mark, we were like, well, even if the baby comes immediately, then even if I need to be whisked in for a C-section, they've got every chance of being absolutely fine. So we saw that as a really positive sign. And for me, it was very, very selfishly just, right, how am I going to get through this labour? Um, and then uh, on the on Saturday, the 21st of September, I was 38 weeks and two days pregnant. My husband went off to coach rugby. So, so it was a new, a new term and he was taking a new cohort of year seven to um, learn how to play rugby. And I was just having a relaxing morning at home. And I remember feeling really tired that day. And I I think I put it down to the fact that I'd I'd been into London the previous day and um, it had just taken it out of me. It's been quite a hot day and the travelling and, yeah, I just felt really tired. And we'd also been woken up in the early hours of the morning. There'd been this almighty crash in the middle of the night and we'd both sat up thinking, what the hell was that? And it turns out it was my poor DIY skills because I'd put up a picture in uh, the baby's nursery and it had fallen down because I hadn't used the right fixing or whatever. Um, and it had turned on the outside lights in our garden. So we both looked out the window thinking, oh, my God, are we, are we being burgled? And then we saw this little hedgehog scuttling about on our decking and we thought, oh, how cute, there's a little hedgehog out there. And so we spent a minute or two watching the hedgehog. And we were like, right, it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning, we need to go back to sleep. We'll figure out whatever it was that made the crash in the morning, it's fine. And, um, yeah, so I think I'd figured, well, maybe I was tired from that. There was an interruption in my sleep. So I went back to bed for a nap. And anyone who knows me knows I can sleep anytime, anywhere. So having a nap is definitely not unusual for me. <laughs> But um, I do feel a lot of guilt about that morning because I had been reading in bed and I just dozed off, just kind of sat up, half propped up in bed. So I, was, I know I was sleeping on my back that morning. So that's sort of reason to blame myself, number one. Um, the, second, the second thing I remember about that morning is Mark coming home from rugby and he said, oh, how are you? How's, how's baby? And I, I said, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And he said, have, have, uh, have they moved much today? And I, and I thought, well, actually, I can't remember them moving at all. And he's, he said, oh, well, why don't we try that thing the midwife told us about, drinking orange juice and lying on our side? Because I think that's, what she, that's one of the things she'd said when we'd reported this episode of reduced movements the other thing she'd said was um I'm sure it's I'm sure it's nothing and yeah if you if you do report reduced movements if you report it several times you won't be able to give birth in the the midwife led birthing unit and in my mind I was thinking wow that doesn't sound very good because that's where I want to give birth that's where I'm imagining this amazing water birth happening and there was no mention of reduced movements being really a, a really dangerous warning sign that all might not be well. And yeah, it was it was a bizarre conversation because how how is that an appropriate thing to tell a pregnant mum about monitoring? Yeah, I mean that sounds it does sound really strange. And I I mean I I guess perhaps she was just trying to be reassuring. But that whole yeah oh if if you report this then it then just implies something in your head doesn't it about oh well I shouldn't report yeah reduced movements which is exactly the opposite of actually what you want to do yeah it's really I mean I can't remember all the exact words she used but 
that was the impression I was left with, which is the important thing, isn't it? Because I think as pregnant women, you go to your appointments, you're doing the, the standard checks, especially if it is your first baby, you're not aware of everything. I, I was someone who's reading all the pregnancy books, and I'm not even joking when I tell you that. I was literally working my way through all of them, but I, I was speed reading them. And yeah, I, I did actually go through some of them after we'd found out um, Esme had died. And I was really looking like, right, does it say anything about reduced movements in here? Did I read it and just didn't pay attention? And in a couple of them, it did say it's important to report reduced movements, but it didn't say why. And this is, again, the <laughs> the thing that really frustrated me and got me angry about it it's it's sort of there's a reluctance to talk about the worst case scenario and yet you are handed leaflets about the fact that your baby is at risk of SIDS and you're handed those leaflets during pregnancy so your baby hasn't even arrived yet and they're already talking about yeah cot death might happen to you and you're thinking whoa okay (laughs) that's good to know thank you and it's it's not a huge risk because if you follow those guidelines, if you do all the things that the leaflet tells you to, then you are reducing your risk massively. It's not eliminating it, but you are doing all you can to keep your baby safe. So I remember feeling really angry. You know, why why weren't we told that monitoring movements is really important because they are an important indication of your baby's well-being? in your womb you do not get many signs that something is going wrong in a pregnancy some are really obvious flushing warning signs you know I, I, I was aware of preeclampsia signs like I said to you about the the headaches and the swelling my midwife asked me every appointment I think in my third trimester have you had any swelling I was thinking nope no, I haven't. And I did get the occasional headache, but nothing like that migraine that had floored me um, at the end of my first trimester. So uh, to me, it's kind of, well, I know I know why you're asking me that. So I'm telling you no, and it's all fine. But she, again, you know, when asking me, have you had any swelling? She didn't say, and I'm asking you this because. And so uh, to me, it was, it just seemed um, there was something going wrong there with antenatal care. You know, why aren't we having these conversations with pregnant women about why we're doing these checks, why it's important to monitor your baby's movements? And my mum spoke to me about being given a kick chart with, um, I think, her fourth pregnancy. I'm one of four. And that's, you don't do, you don't give out kick charts anymore. But you you talk to women about getting to know what your baby's normal pattern of movements is and you have to get this message across that if there's any change in the normal pattern of movement you need to seek advice and you know nine times out of ten everything is going to be fine and yes your baby did just have a quiet day but if there's several episodes of that then that can be a real warning sign. And over that last week, when I look back over that last week, I started to really torture myself thinking, oh my gosh, how many movements did I feel over that last week? Was it, was it just, because I'd remember she'd had another quiet day the day before we found out she died. But I'd been, I had genuinely been busy that day. I'd been traveling on a train into London. I'd been seeing friends. And so I don't think it had really properly registered with me. But oh yeah, those are really quiet. Yeah, I think it's one of those things as well that that becomes a routine, and you don't necessarily. I mean, it, it's it's almost like you know, if there's a crime or something, the police came to you and said, "Oh well, what did you have for dinner two weeks ago?" You'd be like, "Well, <laughs> I, I don't remember, do I?" Because you don't remember those kind of things. But obviously, it's really natural once something does go wrong to then think back and kind of yeah. doubt yourself, or you know. Um, perhaps overanalyze a bit what was going on and what you can't remember as well as what you can remember, yeah. even though, you know, we're human and our memories are faulty. So I guess you did then go into the hospital, was it, on that Saturday? Yeah, so we, we'd we done all the things about trying to, you know, get the baby to move. And then we were like, right, we need to call the hospital. This 
this is what we were told to do, report the move, <laughs> the change. And well, it was, you know, a complete cessation of movements. It wasn't even, yeah, the baby's moving less. It was just, there was nothing. And um, so we called up and they they, te- they said over the phone, oh, have you tried uh, drinking a glass of orange juice lying down? Yes, we have. Okay, you can come in then. And, and that, again, is frustrating because it's, it's A, it's pretty patronizing. Um, and B, don't delay, you know, don't, don't faff about. Wait, because you could be lying there for an hour thinking, oh, yeah, was that a movement? Sometimes when a baby has died, they are still moving around in your room just because you're moving a little bit. And so you might be fooled into thinking, oh, yeah, I'm sure I just felt something. Oh, it's, it's probably probably fine then yeah and I I felt Sky moving like I didn't feel her kicking but I felt her moving after we think she had well we were pretty sure that she had died so and even after we'd been told she was died I could still feel like it still felt whether that was psychological or not it still felt like there was a baby moving in my stomach so and obviously she you know she was earlier I guess so she maybe had a bit more space to move around rather than a full-term baby but yeah I think that's definitely the thing and it just I, I feel like I mean, I, I kind of hope that this, the sort of awareness and what people are told has moved on, perhaps, I, I really you know, over the last eight yeah. years. And I do, but I do also think there is, there is a variety in care, isn't there, yeah. across, across different places that might be part of it. Yeah. So you went, so you went in anyway. To, yeah. Um, so as we were driving in, I remember that car journey being absolutely silent and normally we'd have the radio on we'd or we'd be chatting but it was just silent and I was just really focused on okay I need to feel this baby move I need to feel something and thankfully Mark wasn't asking me every two minutes like have you felt have you found <laughs> that would that would have really annoyed me but he was just he was focused on driving and when we got there um it was a Saturday so it was, but the hospital was so quiet but we were made to wait outside the door of this um, assessment unit. And I remember sitting in this empty waiting area thinking, just let's just get in there. Let's just find out what's happening. It's just, yeah, we just need to get in there. And uh, when we got in there, the midwife was very friendly. She said, oh, have you, um, have you got your straps then? And we both looked at each other like, what? What's she on about? And she'd mistakenly thought we'd come in for monitoring before. And you get given your own set of straps to wrap around you for them to then fix the monitor to. And she she twigged that we didn't know what she was on about. She said, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll get you some, I'll get you some. But it was all very relaxed and, you know, casual and just will bring you into this bay. And I was lying there thinking, yeah, just get on with it, just get on with it, just find the baby's heartbeat, tell me, tell me what's going on. And Mark was really um, squeezing my hand and was visibly upset already. And I was thinking, yeah, this this is not a good feeling being here. I just want to find out what the hell's going on here. I was really confused. That was my overwhelming sensation at that time. And um, she put the Doppler on and she was moving it around and she was saying, oh, I can't find anything, but I could be wrong. And I was at that time, I was still just so confused, just thinking, I really don't know what's happening here. And Mark, by that point, he had tears streaming down his face. And they called these doctors in. To my mind, they looked very junior. But I was thinking, well, <laughs> it's the weekend, you know, you you deal with whoever's there. So fine, just get on with it kind of thing. And they brought this mobile scanning machine in. And I remember they, they had the screen turned away from us. And these junior doctors, I don't even remember them saying hello to us, let alone introducing who they were. And they were just muttering to each other. And at that point, the confusion was turning to anger because I was thinking, no one is telling us what the hell is going on here. And I'm just really confused. Mark was crying. <laughs> I was thinking, this, this really just feels so surreal. I just can't believe this is actually happening. And then I am I am grateful that they were very clear with us and they said, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat, your baby has died. Because if they'd said something like, there's no heartbeat, 
I would have been like, well, what do you mean there's no heartbeat? Or, well, let's We can't find a heartbeat. You know, like you sort of imagine all these emergency scenarios. We'd taken our hospital bags in thinking, worst thing that can happen, I'm I'm whisked in for a C-section and this baby is arriving today. So we'd, we'd taken our hospital bags in, we had a car seat in the car and I needed that absolute clarity, like this is the situation. So hearing those words, your baby has died, it was then like the trap door opened. I think someone's described it as that um, before, but it was really like, what? Oh, my. And it was instant just horror of the reality, the situation setting in. And I just howled this awful scream I couldn't even replicate it now it was just a real guttural raw noise and um, Mark was crying (laughs) and we were both led out of there and I was I I did have the presence of mind to think yeah I need to be taken out of here because I could hear there was a woman in the next bay and I could hear their their baby's heartbeat merrily beating away and I thought they do not need to be listening to this sort of thing. So even at that time, I was sort of registering that there was other things going on. And I think one of the the first feelings I had was this is going to just ruin so many people's lives. You know, I mean, I don't, thinking now, I don't think it has ruined as many people's lives as I maybe thought. But, but at that time, I just thought this is so earth shattering. I just can't see how anyone is going to cope with this news. And we, this is, this is something that we've brought on them. And um, it might be a bit of a strange way to think, but I was, I was just thinking, I was just, I felt this shame come over me and this guilt, you know, like what, how could I have let this happen? And um we were we had a second scan to confirm yeah there's there's definitely you know there's no signs of life and I think again that was that was a sort of necessary next step because I think once that initial shock had worn off both of us might have started thinking well were they were they definitely right they looked quite young you know they might have got it wrong and (laughs) so to have a sonographer confirm it and I couldn't even tell you what words she used but it was a very somber mood in that room and it was just very much like just con- it was like a com- confirmation of what we already knew but i think that was that was important actually looking back and then we were led to the bereavement suite so it's called the star room and as we stepped in there i remember thinking wow this is a really nice room this is really weird i did not expect this but then I didn't even know bereavement suites existed so the whole experience just took on a really surreal quality um Mark made some phone calls to our parents to break the news to them and my parents said right we're we're on our way and I just thought yeah I need need my mum I need her and I think my dad was quite practical and was getting food and things for us and I remember thinking well that's yeah we've got a fridge in here yeah bring us some food (laughs) it's a sort of running joke in our family how hungry Mark gets so I thought yeah we're gonna need this food yeah um and the bereavement midwife was not available because it was the weekend I guess and um looking back I'm glad about that because the, when we did meet the bereavement wife, midwife, I didn't warm to her like I did this first midwife that sat with us. She was just wonderful. And she just really, just her manner, her, her tone of voice she used, everything about her was just so reassuring and calming. And that, that's exactly what we needed at that time. Mark was getting a bit not hysterical, but he was getting very worked up and he was saying, right, well, what happens now? You know, we need to get Frankie a C-section. And and I was thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. I do not want a huge operation to remove my baby. You know, that's not what I want to happen. You know, I don't, I didn't relish the thought of giving late, giving birth or, you know, like, like I said, I was quite afraid of the pain of labor and everything, but there 
the thought of having to have an operation was just not something <laughs> that was, you know, I didn't consider it necessary. I didn't want that to happen. And that midwife was very, very, she just used the perfect words because she didn't sort of make Mark feel silly for saying that. She she just judged the tone of the room and what our relationship was like. It was, I can't describe it. It was just um, exactly what we needed. And um, she just sort of explained very gently that going through labour was going to be better for my physical recovery and she also explained that it was going to be more helpful for my mental recovery as well and I don't think I really understood what she meant at the time but it did make sense to me I did I do remember thinking yes I I need to give birth I need to do that that's that was what we had always been working up towards and in one of your other podcasts I think I remember Emma talking about um, giving birth to her daughter Amelia and the midwife saying you will deliver this baby with purpose and, and that was some I don't think I could have used those words at that time but that's sort of what I was feeling that was kind of my instinct you know I need to do this for my baby for me and um, we were told that what was what was really upsetting to me at that time was being told that we'd have to to wait for that process to start we'd have to go home I was thinking I can't I can't wait I need this to be happening already I need this to be done um and she again very calmly and gently explained that my body wasn't showing any signs of being ready to go into labor so they needed to prepare my body and the best place to do that would be at home just to go home try and get a good night's sleep in my bed she said if you're really desperate to stay in the hospital, of course you can. But honestly, I would really recommend that you go home. And I'm so glad that she did push us to do that because it sort of helped us prepare in a way for what was going to come next. So at home, I was reading all the sans leaflets we'd been given in the hospital. I was already Googling for where we could bury our baby, which sounds very odd, but I was thinking well what else can I do in this time you know <laughs> I'm just in this holding pattern basically and I do remember at that time as well I felt really fearful of having a dead baby in me and that sounds awful when I say it now because that was my beautiful daughter Esme but at that time all I could think was it was a dead baby and it was a horrifying thought. And so I couldn't go to the toilet on my own. I wanted a shower, but I couldn't bear to be on my own for that length of time. So I made Mark just be with me every second. <laughs> and he was fine with that. He he didn't say, like, don't be stupid. And he was just fine. He, he just let me be however I needed to be. There was a lot of um, crying, a lot of talking and just trying to get our heads around it and thinking about next steps and things. We couldn't really sleep well that night. So we went for a walk at three o'clock in the morning, as you do. And uh, <laughs> I remember walking down this countryside lane near our home. And that was when we chose a name for our baby. And we'd been arguing about names throughout the pregnancy. <laughs> but that night, we, it just, yeah, it just felt so easy to settle on the names and we chose one for a girl one for a boy so I'd been pushing to have Esme for a girl um I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say I was totally inspired by Twilight but kind of was (laughs) 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 I don't think I'd heard of the name before reading those books so it just sort of put it in my mind oh Esme that's yeah it's a lovely name and then I looked into the meaning of it. I thought it's such a beautiful meaning. It means held in high esteem and beloved. And I thought, yeah, that's perfect for our baby. And um, we were really struggling with boys' names. And we just couldn't agree. But that night we settled on Toby. Um, so to us, we felt as ready as we were ever going to be to welcome this baby of ours. Um, and when I delivered her and found out I had a daughter it was just uh 
it actually felt like another blow because it was kind of, oh, I've, yeah, I've had a daughter die. Because I think up until that point, you think, well, my baby's died. But then when you know a bit more about them, when you can kind of solidify that vision you've had in your mind, like, oh, yeah, that's that's who I've lost. That's how it felt. It was just a real sort of heart sink moment. And I'm sure it would have been the same if they denounced you've got a boy because it's just again it makes them more of a real person I think and that was something that struck me during my subsequent pregnancies that um some people in my family didn't want to know the sex of the baby we did because we wanted to treasure all of that time we wanted to get to know this new little person and treasure all of that time we had when they were still alive and they were saying to us oh no we we don't want to find out we wanted it to be a surprise but one person and i do applaud her honesty. <laughs> Didn't feel great to be told this at the time, but I do appreciate that's genuinely how she felt. She said, I don't want to know because it makes it harder if the same thing happens again. Mm. I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> but then it sort of made me feel less alone in a way, like, well, you're you're not expecting this to all end well this time either. So <laughs> I'm I'm not totally alone in my fears and but it it made me feel angry at the time because I thought well you have the luxury of separating off and thinking well it won't hurt if I don't know much about this baby it won't hurt so much if they do die I thought well I've already fallen totally in love with this new baby and I'm desperate to bring them home and have them grow up with us so how dare you tell me that you don't want to know about them <laughs> because that will help you. <laughs> it's interesting though how obviously the kind of uh, the death of a baby affects not just the parents but but wider family but actually the impact of pregnancy after loss yeah. is obviously you know mostly on the parents but it can also have those impact on on wider family and friends and and people deal with that in different ways and and I'm sure yeah. there are parents who have perhaps felt like your friend or family member did about their pregnancy you know because they just you know I know a lot of parents struggle to bond when they're pregnant after loss because it's just hard to so hard to think that actually you might get to bring this this baby home with you so I think there's probably reactions on both sides and you know people people do have I guess different views on that and um yeah but it doesn't sound particularly supportive I would say or perhaps not what you wanted to hear in that moment I think I I've sort of struggled with this over the over the years since Esme died it's kind of trying to to get across this is how I feel about it and this is what will be helpful to me and then other people's views and beliefs and ways of dealing with it clashing and I, I've sort of had that selfish part of me think, well, it's not about you. I'm the one that feels this the most. And this is the hardest thing for me. So can't you adapt and change your way of thinking to support me? And I talk about ring theory quite a lot, you know, that you should always focus on the person at the center of the crisis and just do whatever's going to comfort them. So comfort in. And then dump out, you know, if you're having a hard time with it, tell someone else, you know, (laughs) I don't need to know, because I'm dealing with so much already, I can't take on what you're feeling and how I need to adapt my emotions to match yours. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Sorry. But I think um, Mark's been very helpful in that respect, because he's not as selfish as me. And (laughs) he He does, I think he's a lot more realistic as well. He sort of says, look, we're the only ones that really knew Esme, that really loved her like we did. No one else has that same bond, that same relationship with her. They never will. And it's been really helpful for me since having other children as well because that selfish part of me wants to make Esme a really massive part of our family and... I talked to Jago and Ayla about, oh, you have another sister. But to them, she's not a sister. She's kind of this abstract concept of someone who came before them. But they can't see her as a sister, I don't think. Maybe that will change as they get older. 
but I suspect that she won't ever feel like a sister to them in the same way that I think of her as being a sister to them. Because to them, a sibling is someone that you can see and touch and interact with and annoy and <laughs> laugh with. And they're never going to have that relationship with Esme. Just a reminder that the second part of today's episode will be going out in two weeks' time on June the 5th, where we'll talk about grief, life after loss, and talking to children about the loss of a baby. Um, in the meantime, please do go and enter my giveaway, um, which is on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts, or you can find out details in the show notes of how to enter that. I hope you all have a gentle and happy weekend. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.